Okay. I noticed somebody had an alarm go off. That's really smart for a Sunday morning. I would advise all of you set an alarm somewhere during my sermon because um, at least something would keep you awake, right? That would be, or, or get you back awake. Um, does anyone know the latest body count at Twitter, like where it stands right now? You know the story I'm talking about Twitter, it's a, the social media, and very, was very liberally skewed. I think that's fair to say. I don't think I'm getting too political to say that. And Elon Musk came in, and he wanted to turn it into kind of a free speech platform. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like warfare. And Elon Musk is kind of like a conquering general, conquering king coming in. And then it's just like, how many, how many are going to be gone? Five, I think it was 5,000 last I heard. Uh, not killed, but... Uh, but, but fired. Uh, not saying whether that's right or wrong, you can have your own opinions about that, but isn't that the way the world normally works? That when, when one conquers the other, you know, when, a, when one kingdom or one country, nation, state conquers another, you kind of expect there to be some kind of a, a purge. Ask the Romanovs. Oh, wait, you can't ask the Romanovs. Because the communists killed them, along with a lot of millions of other people down, down through the years. Most of the time, conquering kings laid waste to the conquered. You can think of a few exceptions to that in the scripture. Uh, can, you, can you remember or recall a few of those? Um, Esau. Esau and Jacob split on bad terms. So when Jacob was coming back with all of, his, all of his riches and his wives and his children, he put them out in front because uh, he was afraid of what Esau was going to do to him when he got there. Then Esau ends up forgiving him and saying, it's fine. you know. And Joseph's brothers, when they come down looking for food in Egypt, and there's Joseph, they think he's going oh, to really come back and really you know, get vengeance on us. And no, you know, he's, he says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, and he forgives. David, when um, Absalom... Remember Absalom and the rebellion under Absalom and David fled, and then when he comes back, you'd expect him just to clear, clear out you know, every little pocket, every little vestige, and yet he comes back. He's very gracious. You may see where I'm going with this. I'm guessing if you're you know, astute, you see, you see what's, where this is headed. Um, we were God's enemies, and when God's king, the son of David, Jesus, is born in the city of David to be a king, what did his enemies expect? What should we have expected? Think about Herod, and that kind of pretty much answers your question right there. Those that saw him as in that one sense, as he, just the, the sheer power of a king coming in and being born, were ready to kill off all those, all those infants two years and un, under, all those, all those little boys in, in Bethlehem, just, just to deal with what they were afraid was going to come their way. But instead, Christ comes and his enemies actually are given grace. He offers grace. And that's our big idea today. Christ appeared in order to bring us God's grace. And uh, by now you've kind of figured out where we are these four weeks of Advent. We've been talking about the coming of Jesus. And not just in Luke and uh, Luke 2 or in the early passages there in Matthew, but looking at it in the broad sweep of Scripture. There are so many places that speak of his coming, his coming, his appearing, his being sent, his partaking of our flesh, and so on and so forth, that, um, and, and there's probably about 30 of these we've talked about, but um, in each one there's a reason. So today the reason we're looking at is here in Titus, 
and it is the grace of, of God that he brings. First of all, Christ appeared in order to bring us grace for salvation. When you speak about salvation at its most root and rudimentary, concrete idea, what are we talking about? What is, what is a salvation? Well, a salvation in a generic sense is a rescue, isn't it? It's a rescue from danger or death. In spiritual terms, of course, we understand it to be our rescue from the powers of sin and death and hell that is this, the devil and, and all the consequences of sin. All of those great words like justification and redemption and, 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 and uh, 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 atonement, and words like they all fit under that one big category of salvation, don't they? Have you ever been rescued? Have you ever had someone rescue you? Maybe somebody pulled you back from stepping into traffic. How many have had their lives saved or at least serious injury at some point saved by somebody just grabbing you and holding you back because you were about ready to do something stupid? Yes, I see those hands. My hand was up, yeah, because I've, I've had that happen. Embarrassingly, one of my daughters actually did that once. Here in Great Bend at Arby's of all places. Have you ever noticed how close the door there is to the drive through And I was just ready to step out and she grabbed my arm and rescued me. How about that? It's a little embarrassing to say, but yeah, it really, and it, but there's always that sort of element included in the idea of a rescue or salvation is that we're in trouble, we're in danger of, of great bodily harm or of death, and somebody sees our predicament and they pull us out. They, they, they even, sometimes we're unconscious. You could be unconscious after a car wreck and, and, and the paramedics come and they, and they rescue you. They save your life. And that's, so there's always almost, in the very idea of salvation, grace is almost already there. See where I'm going with that? Like the very notion of salvation almost has to include the idea of grace. Christ came into the world as a savior for, to save us. And you're like, well, I know that. Yes, that's, but that's what Advent's about, isn't it? That's what the angel told the shepherds that were out abiding in their fields by night, you know, watching over their flocks. Uh, he says to, to you, is born this day in the city of David a savior. Thank you. You're tracking. It's good. That's good. Or you think about the word of the angel when he comes to Joseph and he says, you know, don't be afraid to take Mary, your, your wife. And, uh, and, and then he says, you're going to name him Jesus, which is Yeshua, which is Joshua, right? Which means Yahweh saves. You're going to name him that because he will save his people from their sins. All right, now let's look at the passage here. The first verse of our passage. Paul writes this in Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So in the context of, of Titus, it's very clear that Paul is not speaking of some abstraction of grace. Correct? When it says the grace of God appeared, it wasn't that snow started falling on, on Bethlehem and that was the grace of God, you know, appearing, was it? What is the grace of God that appeared? It's Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. It is his first coming. He came to save so that all, you know, to bring salvation for all people. Does that mean that all people will be saved? No. What it's saying is, is that that salvation is available to all sorts of people, not only the old covenant people of God, and that's probably the part that people uh, found hardest to understand, but rather he came for men and women from every tribe and, and, and nation and 
language. When we think about the book of Revelation and we have that scene, you, you, you know the one I'm talking about, right? Where John sees the great multitude and they're all clothed in white. And they're men and women from every tribe and, and, and nation and tongue. And they've all been redeemed by the, by the Lamb. That, that salvation is for all people. It is a display of God's grace. It is, it's a display of his glory. And that grace appeared for a free salvation. A free salvation, not of works. In case, you, in case that wasn't already clear with the word grace. If you look at Titus 3, just a few verses later, it's really an extension of this passage that we're, that we're looking at. It says this, and notice the similarity in language here. It says there, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now, if you look at those in parallel, you'll see there that grace is in parallel there to the goodness and mercy of God. Essentially, those are synonyms, aren't they? And in both cases, it's said to be appearing. In both cases, it's talking about Christ And the grace of Christ, the grace that he brings for salvation is a salvation which specifically is said to be not of works. Salvation is of grace. If it weren't, then it would be our wage. It wouldn't be the grace of God. It would be the wage of what we have earned. And trust me, we don't want what we've earned, do we? We don't want, I don't want what I've earned. I'll I'll just say I'm glad for the grace of God. Someone said to me recently, um, they said, you know, it's really obvious that God's grace was uh, operating in, in, when it came to your salvation. And I didn't know how to take them at first, but they, but then they clarified. And they said, because, (laughs) because if you look at your family, the family you came from, there's not really that many card carrying Christians. I mean, there, there's some that had the name slapped on there somewhere, uh, you know, on a census form, but, but no real, honest, earnest Christians that, that, that knew the gospel or anything, and yet, and yet Christ drew me, drew me to himself. And uh, the funny thing is, I remember this very distinctly. Tell me if this, hopefully you're not still thinking what I was thinking, but when I was really young and I came to Christ, I tried to rack my brain and I even asked my grandparents questions because I thought, well, if I'm a Christian, how did that happen? Um, you know what, I bet, I bet I had like a pastor or somebody, you know, back a few generations, you know, because pastors are spiritual people. Um, so where would, like, where would I have gotten that from? There must be something in my, in my heritage. I was honestly, earnestly thinking, well, there might be something in my heritage that would account for that. Now, that's, that's, you say, well, Jay, that was a silly thing for you to think. Is it? Is it really? It's, it, it's a very human thing. What in you makes you worth the salvation that has been revealed to you, that appeared to you? What, what, what did you do? Is it because you came from a spiritually blessed family? Is your last name Graham? You know? Or Chavidian or whatever other name there from, from the Graham uh, household, you know, goes out. Is it, is it because of something like that? Is it because, oh, oh, I know, you did your genetic DNA work from 23andMe, and you found out that you're 2% Jewish. And you thought, there it is, I'm part of the promised people of God. Or maybe you look back and you go, well, when I was a little, little kid, I remember being really earnest about God and, and, and thinking about God a lot and pray. So what, God looked at that and went, hmm, well, if he's going to think about me this much, I guess I better save him or her, as the case. So you, you look in vain. 
Look in vain. Now, those could be evident. All those things are wonderful things that could be evidence. Like, oh, I, I think it'd be wonderful if I found I was part Jewish. I just think that would be very cool, but it turns out I'm not. But, uh, you know, I think those things would be awesome in and of themselves. But none of them account for your salvation. There is no room for any boasting. It came by according to his grace, according to his kindness, his goodness, his mercy. Not in any way, shape, or formed through the righteous things we had done, not by our works, lest anyone should boast. It is utterly a free gift. Now, the bad news is the boasting's out the window. The good news is, <laughs> even if you look back and you've, you're all, you've descended from a bunch of horse thieves, Anybody want to hold your hand up on that one? Any, any, anyone have some horse thieves back there? <laughs> yeah, and some rambling and gambling backsliders back there somewhere. It doesn't matter. It literally matters not one bit. And if that's the case, well, then praise the Lord because that's just, a, that's just more evidence of what we're talking about today. This is why Christ came. That's what Advent's about. He came to save people like you and me, even, even us, even us uh, inferior folk. We've been saved by his grace secondly christ appeared in order to bring us grace for sanctification and i don't like to use big words without explaining them so if i mean if you've been a christian for any time that's not a big word but if you're if you're kind of new to the faith that might be a word you don't understand sanctification comes from the word that means holy and it means the progressive way in which those who are saved in christ grow increase in actual practical holiness in their lives look again at titus now we jump just to the next verse here it says and i'm backing up for repetition's sake for the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation for all people yeah training us so we're still with the same subject matter here training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age so do you see what's happening there are you are you kind of tracking the the grammar and what, what's going on there. It's saying that, that we were lost in sin, but then the gospel came, Christ came, the Holy Spirit awakened us, we, we realized our need, we sought salvation, we found it in Christ. We can say that we are saved, but that isn't the end of the conversation. It goes right into verse 12. So you got verse 11, that's your salvation right there, yeah? Pretty much, that's, that covers Salvation by grace in Christ. But then we get to verse 12. Imagine for a moment the thrill of being accepted to study at Harvard. Anyone here get accepted into Harvard? Crickets. Really? This shocks me here in Great Bend, Kansas, that we don't have a few. Uh, Harvard. Uh, yeah, that would be quite an honor, wouldn't it, to, to be accepted into Harvard. You apply and you get in. And he's, imagine some high schooler coming in. Ah, Pastor Jay, I got great news to tell you. I've been accepted into Harvard. I'd be like, great. That is really good news. Good for you. I knew you were a smart cookie. Um, so how are you going to do it? Are you going to take out loans? Have you got, uh, you know, have you got, got some, um, gosh, I've forgotten what the word is I'm looking for. Scholarships, that was the word I was looking for. Some scholarships, some a rich uncle somewhere, something of that nature. And, and, and you say to me, oh, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. I just think it's cool that I got accepted. And I'd be like, oh, I think Harvard's slipping at this point because this kid's clearly not as bright as I, as I thought he or she was, right? 
You haven't really, I mean, it would be a great honor, but that's not very, that doesn't look very good on a, on a resume later on. You say, oh, you know, as you're applying to McDonald's, hey, I got accepted into Harvard. <laughs> Did you graduate? No, I never went. Like, yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> McDonald's is going to hire you at that point. We are, we are saved by grace, not of works as a result of Christ's mission, but we, that's the beginning point. That's the receiving point. We have been saved because Christ has received us and we have received him. But from that moment forward, we are to abide in Christ. Yeah, like the, like the, like the branch in the vine. We abide in him. John chapter 15, it kind of has a picture of, of what sanctification looks like, much as it does here in Titus. And so there's this progressive Work this organic life of Christ that grows up in us and expresses itself in, in fruit bearing. There's the pruning work of the Father, you know, t- chopping off the things that aren't supposed to be there and, and, and causing us to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Look at it here in verse 12. This is describing it in different terms, but it's the same process. Training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So you went right from grace, the grace that appeared for your salvation, and now all at once, the subject is still that grace, isn't it? The subject is still Christ and his grace that is, that is doing the work. It saves us, but then it trains us. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and all men. So, so grace here is personified like a personal trainer. I won't ask for a show of hands if you've got personal trainers, but, um, but some of you wish you could have a personal trainer, right? That'd be kind of cool. Have somebody there to encourage you and strengthen you when you're feeling weak to get out of bed and go ahead and work out and, and, and do this or that. Grace functions that way. The work of Christ functions that way to train us. It trains us in a twofold manner. If you boil it down, it's a letting go of some stuff that's bad and a taking on of some stuff that's good. That's, that's the process. So for the time we're saved, until we pass on to glory. See, it has this little phrase, in the present age. Did you notice that? The training is happening in the present age. Now, what is in the present age? How do you understand that? It's like, well, that's now. That's like somewhere between the cross and Christ's return. For you and me, it's a dash. You know the dash I'm talking about? The one on your tombstone? got a birth date, got an end date, expiration date, I guess, and then you got the dash in between. That's in the present age. For us, the training, the sanctification, that's happening, not in the future. Our sanctification will be complete, uh, right, when, when glory comes. And before that, you, you know, you, you just have the work of Christ, just the work of Christ saving you, but in between, in between, from that moment of, of your second birth onward, you are involved in that training. Grace isn't just a get-out-of-jail-free card. Typically, when we talk about grace, we're thinking most specifically, and most often, we're thinking about the grace of salvation. But what we're talking about in grace is broader and bigger than that. It's the, it's the work of God. It's the favor of God that we have not merited. It is, a, it is a grace for saving, but 
It is also the grace that continues on in the sanctification, in the training. We are to live that out. Paul puts it this way in Philippians, and I quote this quite frequently because it just captures it very succinctly. He says there, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, some people could hear that and think that we, we work our salvation. We don't work our salvation. We've just been told that that doesn't come through works. But rather what it's saying is work out your salvation. That is, having been saved by the work of Christ, work it out. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see how grace is there for sanctification, for salvation, and then it's there for the sanctification as well? It empowers both. Take it back to the Harvard example. If you had what it took to get into Harvard, no doubt you would have what it would take to get through Harvard. Yeah? Okay, and it's a really crummy illustration because, admittedly, it'd be a bad illustration if you just let it just sit there because the implication with the Harvard thing is that you're smart enough in yourself you know, to, to make that work. Right? In this case, the ability isn't yours what we're talking about. It's the ability of God. If God has the ability to receive you, to save you by his grace, then God has the ability to complete that good work in you. There's a quote from Amazing Grace, which will sound probably familiar to your ears. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home, and grace will lead me home. If you know the Lord, um, trust me, there's, I mean, there's gonna be times, no matter who you are, and no matter how good your walk with the Lord is, there are gonna be times when you question your own faith and your own sincerity. I can guarantee you that, All right, no, because nobody is so fully sanctified that they can look at their life and not see problems. Like where, where how is it there, as Paul would talk about, you know, that there's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my sinful flesh, and that sinful flesh itself, the, the sinful flesh doesn't get any better, right? It is Christ in us and the work of the Holy Spirit that gets better, but that old flesh, and you look at that, and you look at your, your sometimes just lethargy, you know, laziness, slothfulness in, in, in the Lord, or, or, or times where, you know, even though you were supposed to have long since become more self-controlled, you feel like there's just these areas where, where you fail, and, uh, and you start questioning, well, maybe I'm fooling myself. I would say to you, dear brother or sister, do you remember the grace when it took hold of you. Do you remember that? Knowing that God had sent his son for you, believing, trusting in Christ. And as surely as the one who began that good work in you faithfully brought you to himself at that time, he is still faithful to keep you, to take you through his training. You know, the, the, the writer of Hebrews talks about, uses the same word, it gets translated discipline. You know, and no one likes discipline, but the father disciplines the son he loves. It's evidence of that. So if you're going through hardship, trials, struggle in your Christian life, that is evidence of the work of the father in you. Yeah? He begins it. He saves us. He continues that work. He trains us in righteousness. Finally, Christ appeared in order to bring us grace in a blessed hope. So now... We continue, and this is all neatly laid out. I love, the, I, I love it. It's like Paul knew that preachers wanted to do three-part sermons or something because it just comes out so perfectly here. We get to verse 13. Um, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you look at the context, you see how this builds. You've got the grace of Christ appearing in verse 11. It is a grace for the saving of all peoples. And then that, that grace works itself out like we talked about in, in the training. And then we find out that the, that, the, that the energy for that training and for that holding on and persevering through it is all because of the hope which he has set before us. As we live the Christian life, the force of that life is our hope at Christ's appearing. Do you love the symmetry of that? I know I do. I look at that and I go, well, this is kind of cool. We've got Advent, yeah, which is his coming, his arrival. That's at salvation. And then we have this present age in which we're trained, and we're being trained, and the thing that keeps us from letting go in the training is Advent. So it's Advent training, Advent. From one Advent to another, his coming with the hope of his coming. I think that's kind of neat. So let me back up for a moment though and talk about hope because we need to understand what we talk about when we think about the hope of his second coming. Hope is not the, this kind of trivial way that we use the word hope in the English language. How many hope to win like the big lottery at some point? You know, you'd like to hope that. No one's admitting because you're in church. Oh, okay, I can see that hand. Um, a lot of people, that, I don't play the lottery myself, but I know plenty of people that do, and, and that's not hope, right? That's not hope. That's like the so you're saying there's a chance kind of hope. That is, that is not a legitimate hope. That is wishful thinking. That, that is a severely bad case of wishful thinking, um, but we tend to use it that way. Here, here's what hope means in the Scripture. Hope in the Scripture is a forward-looking expectation which we set upon something which our heart desires. So what you have to have there is you have to have a reasonable conviction that that is actually coming to you. Yeah, that, that whatever that is that you're looking forward to is yours, but it's not yours yet, but it's been promised in such a way that you know it's going to happen. My grandfather, and I've used this illustration so many times, but I remember he, he had a gold watch that belonged to his father, and he would show that to me from time. I'd say, show me the watch, Grandpa, and he'd show it to me because he'd promised that I would, I would receive that, and I did, by the way. I've got it, but it's not at home, so if you're a thief and you're listening to this, not at my house, okay? I got it under lock and key. Anyways, it was very, it was a very, I knew that if my grandfather said I would get it, that it, I would get it, but I, I didn't want my grandfather to die, so it was like it was, you know, it was off in the future, something to look toward. You look in the, in the Bible at the story of Jacob and Rachel. You remember he wanted to marry Rachel. He kind of got Leah or Leah in the bargain, but, uh, but he really was working for Rachel. You remember that story, don't you? I don't want to have to retell it. But anyway, here it says in Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And that's just a perfect example of what biblical hope looks like. You've been promised something. You know it's coming. You set your heart on it. You work with all of the intensity of your soul as you look forward to that thing and, and that, that thing that you've set your heart on makes the, the working and the, and the striving and the, and the enduring all worthwhile. It makes the persevering happen. It makes the training worth going through because you've set your hope on that which your heart desires. And the reason it's called blessed hope 
here is that there is no greater hope that could bless you. Of all the hopes, and unfortunately, you know, I was thinking about this even as I was writing, I was thinking, you know, this may just really be one of those aha things because, boy, if something could change the average Christian's life in America, it would be successfully keeping the hope, the hope, right? If, if the hope of his advent, his second advent, would remain here enough and, and here, if I dwelt enough and thought enough, more, more, more. Free. But what happens? We we start hoping we look. We start hoping we win the lottery. Why? Because this present age thing is really, really important to us, right? And yet, and yet, where's our heart to be? Where's th- th- there's going to come a time the trumpet shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise. We'll be caught up in the air to meet them and, and be with the Lord forever. In the twinkling of eye, will be changed. The burden of this sin that, that so easily besets is going to be utterly burned away. We, we, we are going to be in glory with Christ. The training will all be done, and the woes and the cares and the, and the tears will be gone. That's our hope of Christ's coming. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but this, uh, this passage fits kind of neatly into a truism. You'll recognize the truism once, because we say it from time to time, so you should know it, but if you don't, now you'll learn it, but um, it is a truthful thing to say that in the New Testament, when we talk about the word salvation, that we can speak of it as past tense, present, ongoing, whatever that is in the, in the English tenses, and then future. So we can say, on the one hand, there are passages that say, you have been saved. It puts it in past tense, or it says, you are saved, so it's an accomplished thing. But then there are other verses that talk about our ongoing salvation, that is working salvation in us and so forth. But then there's passages that speak about our coming salvation of Christ's return. And the cool thing is, all three of these are right here in the passage that we looked at today. Advent. Christ came into the world. He brought salvation. Those of us who have come to put our trust in Christ can say we are saved. But now we're in this present age. <laughs> we're in this present age and, and, and the grace of God is training us. It's training us to, to let go of the evil and take hold of the good. So we are being saved, as it were, by his ongoing, keeping, working, persevering work in us. And we are looking toward our ultimate salvation, the glory of Christ and his second coming. We offer you that grace today. If you don't have it, there's um, good news here. And there is, and that's, that's that nothing can disqualify you from that grace if you, if you want it. You can look in vain at, at, your, you know, at your heritage and find no good anywhere you look. You could be from the roughest, you know, the roughest family that, that, that's known to man. You, you might look back and find no one that you'd want to tell anyone about if you, in polite conversation. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Christ came into this world. The reason for Bethlehem, the reason for his advent, was so that he might offer salvation to all peoples. The grace of God is there if you want it. You say, well, what do I need to do? Well, there's nothing you can do. It's not of works. But the response that you're called to to give is, is to turn. To turn from the way you're going, 
to turn from your sin, from your rebellion against God, and look to Jesus Christ and put your trust in him. He is the savior of the world. If you come to him in faith, receiving the work that he did for you, receiving him as the savior and Lord of your life, you can be assured that he dwells in you, that you have eternal life. You can know that he will, he will take you through his school of training until that time that he returns. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for salvation, past, present, future in all of its, uh, in, in all of its permutations, in, in every aspect of its grace. Thank you, Lord, that you came and you brought grace to those who needed it so desperately. Lord, we couldn't save ourselves. It's just the very nature of salvation that one can't truly save oneself when, when, when we're in that desperate a situation as we were in. Thank you that you came to, to give salvation to all peoples, Lord, to offer yourself as a sacrifice for our sin. And Lord, that you're willing, having begun that good work in us, to carry it on to completion. Lord, thank you for your church. Thank you for the the ability uh, that you give us to bear the gospel, to tell it. We're not always the best at doing so, Lord. We fumble with our words. We, we, uh, We think about what we could have said that we didn't and what we shouldn't have said and we did And when we try to tell people about you. But Lord, we pray. That, um, that by your grace, this, this message of Advent might come through us to those who need to hear. And that even this day, Lord, you would, you would bring someone um, into your kingdom, into that salvation, awaiting your glory. We pray it in your name. Amen.